Good evening. My name is David Leslie, and as the Executive Director of the Rothkare Chapel here in Houston, Texas, it's my privilege to welcome you to the chapel and the 2020 Francis Tarleton Sissy Farenthold Endowed Lecture in Peace, Social Justice, and Human Rights. The Farenthold Lecture is presented in partnership with the Bernard and Audrey Rappaport Center for Human Rights and Justice at the University of Texas School of Law in Austin, Texas. In recognition of Sissy's leadership at both the Rothko Chapel and the UT Law School, the annual lecture is held in Houston and Austin on alternating years. Now, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this year is being presented virtually, which is really unfortunate and a bit of a shame as I wish we could host you in the newly restored chapel that reopened last week after a 19-month restoration and hiatus due to the pandemic. The good news, however, is more than 650 people have registered for tonight's event, representing 31 states in a diversity of countries, including Australia, Brazil, Canada, Guatemala, Mexico, and India. Now, I'd like to give you a better sense of the chapel's mission and the context for the images you virtually saw as you entered the chapel this evening. For almost 50 years, the chapel has been a place of pilgrimage, welcoming visitors from all over the world who are seeking solace, respite, and renewal within the walls of this transformative sanctuary, a complete work of art by Mark Rothko. On the plaza in front of the chapel stands Barnett Newman's broken obelisk, dedicated to the living legacy and memory of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. This iconic sculpture makes clear the Rothko Chapel's commitment to engage social justice, mindful always of the implications of how we order and live out our individual and communal priorities and social commitments. The 2020 Farenthal Lecture exemplifies these commitments as the chapel begins a special 50th anniversary series of programs exploring the history and future of civil rights and human rights in this country, including, again, our collective responsibilities to join together to end injustice and further equity and equality for all people. For more background on the Farenthal Lecture, it's now my pleasure to present my good friend and the visionary force behind the lecture, Professor Karen Engel. Karen is the Minerva House Drysdale Regents Chair in Law at the University of Texas School of Law and founder and co-director of the Rappaport Center, who will now share more information about the Farenthold Lecture. Thank you, David, for that kind introduction. Good evening from the Bernard and Audrey Rappaport Center for Human Rights and Justice at the University of Texas. We serve as a focal point for critical interdisciplinary analysis and practice of human rights and social justice with the aim of combating the unequal distribution of wealth and power, both locally and globally. It is once again an honor to present this program with the Rothko Chapel. On behalf of my co-director, Neville Hode, and assistant director, Sarah Klein, we thank you, David, Ashley Klimmer, and Kelly Johnson for working with, with us to select the lecturer, but especially for coordinating and producing this year's event. 
Charles Blow, and those who have joined us from far and wide, I too am delighted and honored to welcome you to the sixth annual Francis Tarleton Sissy Farenthold Endowed Lecture in Peace, Justice, and Human Rights. Before I tell you about Sissy and the Endowed Lectureship, let me recognize Sissy virtually. She is here with us tonight, watching and listening from her home in Houston. Thank you for being here, Sissy. The lecture series was made possible when six years ago, a number of Sissy's friends from all over the country, many of whom are watching this evening, some for the first time given the virtual format, came together to help establish an endowed lecture in Sissy's name. Together, they have donated nearly $130,000 toward our $200,000 goal. People have contributed and continue to do so because of their respect and love for Sissy, but also because they're eager to find ways to continue to engage with her and her ideas and to continue the work she has done and the causes she has championed. Let me tell you about some of those ideas and causes. Those of you who know Sissy Farenthold know that she is first and foremost a grassroots activist who has long been involved in anti-military, anti-Black racist, anti-poverty, feminist, pro-environment, and pro-labor work locally as well as globally. I'm proud to say that she's a graduate of Texas law. She began her career as a legal aid lawyer in South Texas and then ran for and won a seat in the Texas House of Representatives where she made a name for herself for a number of reasons including her successful sponsorship of the Texas Equal Rights Amendment and becoming one of the principal leaders of a group of progressive Democrats and a few Republicans who appropriated a slur that was aimed at them, the Dirty 30. In 1972, she ran for and nearly became Texas governor with broad base support including of a number of populist progressive Democrats running for office for the first time. She then came in second to be McGovern's vice presidential running mate and went on to serve as the first chair of the National Women's Political Caucus, the first female president of Wells College, co-organizer of the Women's Peace Tent at the UN World Conference on Women in Nairobi, and an international human rights activist, which manifested partly in her roles as chair of the board of the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington and the Rothko Chapel. Her activism has always entailed time in the streets, marching and speaking against the Iraq war, for example, and for movements such as Occupy Wall Street and Janitors for Justice. Hopefully, the background I've provided gives you some sense of Sissy and the demanding call we make of the Sissy Farenthold Endowed Lecturers. Here's our criteria. In line with Sissy's own history of exposing and responding to injustices and inequality, as both a public servant and citizen, the lecture series will bring internationally renowned scholars and activists who will inspire their audiences to think and act creatively to respond to some of the greatest challenges of the 21st century. Every year, it seems, our challenges become 
ever more daunting. But Charles Blow is up for this task. One of the reasons that we selected Charles Blow for our lecture tonight is because of the commitment he and Sissy share to uncovering and attacking the racialized structures that produce and maintain inequality. I've already suggested some of the ways that Sissy has done that throughout her career and through a variety of social movements. But let me just give you a few more specific examples. Many people have speculated on why Sissy failed to win her 1972 gubernatorial race. Two of the most cited reasons are responses she proposed to structural racial injustice. First, against the advice of some of her backers, she supported busing for school integration. And second, she called for disarming the Texas Rangers, which she called a festering sore for the damage they wrought, especially on Mexican-Americans in South Texas. Sissy has maintained these commitments throughout her life, quite aware of her privilege as a white woman and compelled to use that privilege in the service of justice, including by being arrested in 1985 for criminal trespass after talking her way into a meeting with the South African Consulate General in Houston and then denouncing apartheid in the meeting while protesters from Free South Africa organized outside the building. Ongoing racial segregation, racialized abusive policing, and white privilege are of course all on our minds this evening. I can think, think of no finer person to address them than Charles Blow. Thank you again, Mr. Blow, for being with us tonight. Back to you, David. Karen, thank you so much for your remarks and further describing the genesis and the importance of the lecture, as well as your personal introduction to Sissy Farenthold, who is both a personal friend of mine and a friend and inspiration to so many people in so many places. Now, one other thing I'll need to do tonight before I introduce tonight's speaker is I want to express our collective gratitude to all the supporters of the Farenthold Lecture. First, a very special thanks to the Ford Foundation and its president, Darren Walker, who, by the way, delivered the Farenthold Lecture in 2016 for their generous support of this year's lecture. I also want to thank all the donors who have helped endow the lecture series and invite you to continue to support the series in the years to come. I too want to add my sense of gratitude and thanks to Neville Hode and Sarah Klein with the Rappaport Center, as well as my colleagues Ashley Clemmer, the Chapel's Director of Program and Community Engagement, and Kelly Johnson, our Volunteer Manager and Program Coordinator, who have collectively worked very hard to make this evening a success. And finally, a very special thanks to a friend and a leader in this community, Melanie Lawson, who will moderate this evening's question and answer session following Charles Blow's remarks. Melanie, if you don't know her, is an award-winning journalist with ABC Houston affiliate Channel 13, a member of the Rothko Chapel Board of Directors, and a leading civil rights and human rights advocate in this city. One piece of business to be especially attentive to, 
that if you have a question for Mr. Blow, we invite you to email your questions during his talk to programs at rothkochapel.org. And Melanie will do her best to include some of them in her conversation with Charles. Now with that, it is my pleasure tonight to present the 2020 Farenthal Lecturer. In thinking about who would be the right person to deliver this year's lecture and the spirit of the lecture series goals that Karen laid out earlier, the planning committee could think of no one better than Charles M. Blow. Mr. Blow is an op-ed columnist at the New York Times whose columns address contemporary critical social justice and human rights issues, including the killing of Breonna Taylor and the injustice that so many black and people of color experience with the police and legal system, the value of or the lack thereof of the current presidential debates, the failure of, I quote, good people to address societal wrongs and injustice, issues such as gun control, and the power and the need for the Black Lives Matter movement. Mr. Blow is also a CNN commentator and was a presidential visiting scholar at Yale, where he taught a seminar on media and politics. He's the author of the critically acclaimed New York Times bestselling memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. This book won a Lambda Literary Award and the Sperber Prize and made multiple prominent lists of best books published in 2014. People Magazine called it searing and unforgettable. It also inspired Terrence Blanchard's opera, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, with the libretto by Casey Lemons. In addition to working with the New York Times, he was art director of the National Geographic Magazine and worked for the Detroit News. He graduated magna cum laude from Grambling State University in Louisiana, where he received a BA in mass communications. And he holds an honorary doctorate from the Massachusetts College of Art and Design in Boston. He now lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and has three children. On behalf of the Rappaport Center and the Rothko Chapel, it is indeed an honor to have Charles M. Blow with us this evening to deliver the 2020 Francis Tarleton Sissy Farenthold Endowed Lecture in Peace, Social Justice, and Human Rights. Charles, we're glad to have you with us, even if it is virtually, and we look forward to the time you can be here in Houston, Texas. And we look forward to your remarks and the conversation following with Melanie Lawson. Welcome. Thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, uh, virtual lectures are tricky, uh, and I hope we don't have any snafus here. I, this, this document uh, crashed on me a couple of times right before I was introduced, so I don't want that to happen. So if it does, bear with me and we'll get back up and running. Anyway, let's start. In 1961, CORE, which is the Congress of Racial Equality, organized the Freedom Riders. It was modeled after the group's journey a reconciliation like 14 years earlier. The first action was to test a 1946 Supreme Court ruling that found that segregated bus seating unconstitutional. The 1961 action was to test a 1960 Supreme Court ruling 
that found that the segregation of interstate transportation facilities, including bus terminals, was unconstitutional as well. There were 13 members among the original 1961 Freedom Riders. Seven black, six white. Their bus started in Washington, D.C., and they planned to go all the way to New Orleans. They were met with terror and violence and arrest all along that journey. Two years later, in 1963, Martin Luther King was jailed in Birmingham and wrote his stinging letter from a Birmingham jail, which included this passage. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with you in your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is more bewildering than outright rejection. The next year, 1964, CORE, SNCC, and, uh, and other civil rights organizations organized the Mississippi Summer Project to help register Black voters in the state to vote. In 1962, just 7% of the state's eligible Black pop voters were registered to vote. The effort would come to be called Freedom Summer. Over 700 people volunteered to join the black people in Mississippi in this effort. Most of the volunteers were white. One of the most notable acts of terror the group faced was the killing of three members who were investigating a church fire in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Two of those killed were young white men from New York. Freedom Summer didn't register many voters, but it did draw national attention to the civil rights movement and added to the political pressure that helped secure the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. With the passage of the voting law, SNCC began trying to register voters in Selma, Alabama, which is in Dallas County, a county where black people were the majority of the population but only 2% of the registered voters. White racist terrorists in the state were having none of it. During a clash between protesters and state troopers in, in February, 26-year-old Jimmy Lee Jackson was killed. 
In response, civil rights leaders planned a march from Selma to the state capital in Montgomery to take their case directly to the governor, George Wallace. Over 600 people, men, women, and children set out on the march. But when they reached Edmund Pettus Bridge, the state troopers, some on horseback, attacked, swinging clubs, whips, rubber tubes wrapped in barbed wire. John Lewis's skull was fractured that day, a day that would come to be known as Bloody Sunday. Martin Luther King was in Atlanta at the time, so he quickly joined the protests in Alabama and sent out a call to the clergy all around the country to join, regardless of religion, regardless of race. Many responded, including many white clergy. This was in part to demonstrate religious unity in the quest for peace and equality. But it was also a way of what we call today using white privilege as protection. The white racist officers wouldn't dare be as brutal to white men and women of the cloth draped in full vestments. They completed the march. From the steps of the Capitol in Montgomery, King proclaimed, there never was a moment in American history more honorable and more inspiring than the pilgrimage of clergymen and laymen of every race and faith pouring into Selma to face her at the side of its embattled Negroes. That moment in America felt to many like a racial reckoning, what we're here to talk about today. One in which well-meaning white people were joining with oppressed black people to right the racial wrongs of the country. But then things began to change. Black people living in the supposedly liberal cities in the North and West have been living in oppression, oppressive conditions for decades. Conditions that made hypocrites of some of the liberals chiding the racists in the South. In the mid 60s, seeing that progress was in fact being made in the South, but sensing no progress where they were, riots erupted in Detroit, in Newark, in Watts. As King told reporters when visiting Watts shortly after the riots, they were the beginnings of stirrings of those people in our society who have been bypassed by the progress of the past decade. Many people in America, particularly white America, were alarmed and repulsed. White liberals had already grown apprehensive about the speed and scope of the civil rights expansions. A survey of New Yorkers in the New York Times in 1964 found that a majority believed that, quote, the Negro civil rights movement had gone too far. The Times wrote, while denying any deep-seated prejudice against Negroes, a large number of those questioned used the same terms to express their feelings. They spoke of Negroes receiving, quote, everything on a silver platter and of, quote, reverse discrimination against whites. Sound familiar? A few months after the riots, the Saturday Review published a collection of essays under the title, Beyond the Los Angeles Riots. King's essay was the first, entitled, Next Stop, the North. 
In it, he argued the civil rights movement had largely been a regional movement confined to the South with the South reaping the most of the benefits. He then wrote, in the North, on the other hand, the Negro's repellent slum life was altered not for the better, but for the worse. Oppression in the ghettos intensified. To the homes of 10 years ago, squalid then, were added 10 years of decay. School segregation did not abate, but increased. Above all, unemployment for Negroes swelled and remained unaffected by general economic expansion. As the nation, Negro and white, trembled with outrage at police brutality in the South, police misconduct in the North was rationalized, tolerated, and usually denied. Does that sound familiar? King decided to do his part to tackle these issues and head off further rioting. He took his fight for fair housing to Chicago. He moved to Chicago in 1966 to a third floor walk up in the North Lawn area. It was a two bedroom apartment that had a broken door and reeked of urine the day that he moved in. When in Chicago, King learned a lesson that shocked him. Northern racism was just as virulent and possibly more virulent than Southern racism. When they marched in the South, a few hundred racists and Klansmen might show up in opposition. When he marched in Chicago, thousands of white people, many of them violent, showed up in opposition. As the Chicago Tribune reported, at least 30 people were injured, some by a hail of bricks and bottles accompanied by racial epithets. Some counter demonstrators were clubbed by baton wielding police officers. More than 40 people were arrested when a crowd of whites blocked adjourning streets and cursed the police, several of whom were hurt. King was hit so hard in the head by a rock that day that it brought him to his knees. As King would observe following the march, I have seen many demonstrations in the South, but I have never seen anything so hostile and so hateful as I have seen here today. In a speech at Stanford in 1969, shortly before he was assassinated, King recalled, I am convinced that many of the very people who supported us in the struggle in the South are not willing to go all the way now. I came to see this in very difficult and painful ways. In Chicago, the last year where I've lived and worked, some of the people who came quickly to march with us in Selma and Birmingham weren't active around Chicago. And I came to see that so many people who supported morally and even financially what we were doing in Birmingham and Selma were really outraged against the extremist behavior of Bull Connor and Jim Clark towards Negroes, rather than believing in genuine equality of Negroes. And I think that this is what we got to see now. And this is what makes the struggle much more difficult. And I tell you all that to say that this is where we are now, where King was then. In some ways, history may be repeating itself. 
George Floyd wasn't the first person to be killed in that way. But it was an embarrassment. People responded in some ways to the horror of it rather than really believing in genuine equality and all that that would take. And what we're seeing is what King started to see. Yes, there were people who engaged in the white people, engaged in the civil rights movement, elbow to elbow, cheek to jowl with the black people. They genuinely grew out of it. They genuinely became activists out of it. They genuinely believed in equality. They were genuine egalitarians. But the country as a whole backlashed. And that is something that the country as a whole has done repeatedly throughout history. You had a civil war and slaves were freed and immediately the Ku Klux Klan is started and the black codes are in, uh, instituted. You have reconstruction and as soon as the federal government allows it to fail and withdraws federal troops from the South, reign of terror sets in across the South. And states all across the South call constitutional conventions and they're not shy about why they're doing it. They're doing it to write white supremacy into the DNA of the South. When we get the ruling on Brown v. Board of Education, the White Citizens Council is begun months later, right? Every time when you see the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, right after that is when you see the curve of mass incarceration start to go up. Which basically performs all the same functions as Jim Crow. And when you get your first black president months after you get the Tea Party rise, and when they are not successful enough to topple him, you get the birth of Donald Trump. People keep calling the protests we've seen in the wake of George Floyd a racial reckoning. But it is fair to question the veracity of that assertion. It is true that George Floyd's killing struck at something in the social consciousness. Uh, there had been other killings of unarmed black people, but this was different. This was depraved. This was disgusting. There was no way to reason it away, to make it appear justifiable. There was no ambiguity. It was tragic and it was cruel and it was the cruelty of it that activated people's anger and disgust. It became a catalyst. Millions of people confined to home by a deadly pandemic and a halted economy poured into the streets, mostly young, mostly white, to assert that Black Lives Matter and to demand police accountability and reform as well as racial justice and equality. A Pew Research Center report in late June found that 6% of American adults said they'd attended a protest or rally that focused on issues of race and racial equality in the month preceding the survey. That is about 15 million people, just an incredible number of people. 
the percentage of protesters who were white was nearly three times the percentage who were black. The percentage who were Hispanic was even higher than the percentage who were black. People get to talk about it in these lofty terms, the, the racial reckoning, one that is long overdue. Racist monuments came down and supportive placards went up. We painted murals on the street and took down statues. Companies committed to changing the black faces on bottles of syrup and bags of rice. Athletes protested and boycotted and race car drivers held a racial solidarity parade. We held quasi, a, a kind of a quasi social distance redux of the March on Washington. There were television specials about injustice and expanded coverage of protests. Books about race rose to the top of the bestsellers list. Members of Congress donned kente cloth. Joe Biden took a knee. Mitt Romney marched with the protesters. States like New York and California passed police reform legislation and scores of individual departments banned or restricted chokeholds and strangleholds or required officers to intervene when their colleagues use excessive force. But national progress, even on the issue of police accountability and reform, remained elusive. The slate of police reforms passed by the House quickly got bogged down in the Senate. And to put it plainly, most of the actions amounted to feel-good gestures that cost nothing and shifted no power. They created little justice and provided little equality. Even the House bill, with its slate of de minimis reforms, would basically punish the system's soldiers without altering the system itself. It would make the soldiers the fall guys for the bad behavior while doing little to condemn or even address the savagery of the system that required their service. The bill stalled as the protests began to dwindle. People were then forced to consider whether many of the people who had marched and carried signs were truly committed to black lives and black liberation or whether some deprived of rites of passage, parties and proms had simply developed a cabin fever racial consciousness, using the protests as a congregational outlet, treating them like a social justice Coachella. Young people could be outside together, part of something, feel something. For some, the protests were simply a rebellion against isolation and social distancing. The protests became a proxy for a hall pass. When Jacob Blake, another unarmed black man in uh, Wisconsin was shot several times in the back, in front of his children, again in the street, in broad daylight, just 40 minutes south from where Floyd was murdered, there was no similar outpouring of outrage. The summer was winding down. Schools were reopening and the fashion had faded. A poll of people in Wisconsin found that in the weeks after Floyd was killed, the approval of Black Lives protests among white Wisconsinites was net plus 22. In the days leading up to Blake's shooting, it was a net negative five. 
He didn't change at all among black people and Hispanic people in that state. We're still held steady at a positive plus 58. In some cases, white allies even began to center their own maltreatment rather than protest uh, while protesting rather than the fundamental issue at hand, the maltreatment of black people throughout their lives. How dare the police treat these white liberals poorly, unfairly assault or arrest them? For black people, state violence and injustice are an intrinsic reality. For the white liberal, it was a jarring assault, an assault on their privilege. For these protesters, the social justice battle for black lives was converted into a second amendment battle for free speech and right to assemble. That became the glue that bound them to the cause. But in the binding, as is always the case, the precise particular grievance of black America is ever in danger of subsumption. The black battle is not necessarily joined, but hijacked, overwhelmed by the white liberal grievance. The president of the Portland, Oregon branch of the NAACP wrote an opinion piece about the protests in that city for the Washington Post under the title, Portland's protests were supposed to be about black lives. Now they're white spectacle. In it, he questioned, vandalizing government buildings and hurling projectiles at law enforcement draw attention but how do these actions stop police from killing black people? What are Antifa and other leftist agitators achieving for the cause of black equality? The wall of moms, while perhaps well-intentioned, end up redirecting attention away from the urgent issue of murdered black bodies. This might ease the conscience of white affluent women who have previously been silent in the face of black oppression, but it's fair to ask, are they really furthering the cause of justice or, or, or is this another example of white uh, uh, co-option? And in the end, however protests perform for whatever motivation, it will always eventually wane, outrage expensive emotion, it consumes energy like a blaze. At some point, inevitably, the fuel is exhausted. In the afterglow of it all, in the ashes of it all, what have we truly gained from this episode beyond displays of performative activism, people cosplaying Black allegiance, and legislative tokenism that assuages white guilt but attempts to coax Black people back into passivity, back to quietly absorbing an endless oppression? The supposed racial reckoning serves only to underscore racism's rigidity. Not much change for black people. Power did not shift and it must. We must make sure, make a statement that this is a true change in American ideology and not an activist chic summer street festival for people who have been cooped up for months, not able to go to school or to concerts at the bars. We must resist efforts to simply pacify and quell, to simply stop the awful images. We have to strike at the root that the entire system operates in a way that is anti-Black, that it advantages 
disadvantages and even punishes blackness, that part of your privilege is built oppression. This society creates conditions in which extreme concentrated poverty can exist and then punishes those who react negatively to being condemned to that poverty. This society doesn't sufficiently care for or ensure people guaranteeing that every person, regardless of station or wealth, has equal access to health care, and then it punishes those who suffer from stress and depression and violent fits of rage because of it. This society systematically cloisters power, economic, political, and cultural, in the hands of an elite few, almost all of whom are white, and then bemoans the apathy of those from whom power is withheld. We need more than performative solidarity. We need more than narrow, chaste legislation. In Martin Luther King's 1967 book, Where Do We Go From Here, he wrote, the practical cost of, of change for the nation up to this point has been cheap. The limited reforms have been obtained at bargain rates. There was no expense and no taxes were required for Negroes to share a lunch counter or libraries, parks, hotels, and other facilities with whites. In another instance, he said, we bargained race because it didn't cost the nation anything and real change is going to cost something. But he, what we are seeking at that point, quality education, decent, good paying jobs, fair housing, would actually cost the nation something. That is what real justice looks like. Equal access to possibility, equal access to success, equal access to safety. In this fight, our sights must be set high. Our demand must be comprehensive. There is no glory in aiming small, in meekly pleading before power, to accepting crumbs from uh, on the floor when the bread is on the table. Poverty is a problem. Wealth inequality is the problem. All the things that lead to and attend poverty and wealth inequality are the problem. But no one wants to talk about that, let alone deal with it. Because to truly tackle these issues would mean in some way some form of wealth redistribution. And the mere mention of that discomforts the comfortable. It is well and good if racial attitudes changed in this season and people experience personal growth on the issue of race and equality. But the bulk of racism is not about attitudes. It's about power. As Stokely Carmichael put it, if a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. If he has the power to lynch me, that's my problem. Racism is not a question of attitude. It is a question of power. We will have to come to see that this system of oppression has been actively, energetically designed and deployed over centuries. And it may take centuries 
of equally active and energetic efforts to dismantle it. We must come to the conclusion that some of what we saw as a racial awakening was prone to wither. Some of what we saw was people immersing themselves in the issue of the moment. I personally am leery of tokenism, leery of the illusions of progress as the system holds fast. I am leery of appeasement, of being told that there is change coming as a way of quieting me in the waiting. If we want a racial reckoning, we can have one, but it will take far more dismantling and redesigning of systems than we have seen this summer. Thank you very much. Fantastic, Charles Blow. Thank you so much. What a what a brilliant historical perspective for this conversation. Uh, good evening, everybody. I'm Melanie Lawson, and I'm delighted to be a part of this conversation tonight. And uh, of course, about uh, his incisive writing, his brilliant commentary, all of which uh, is more heightened now in the wake of the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many other black men and women at the hands of police and really at the hands of the system. Um, but I do want to start off this evening, if it's all right with Charles, by uh, not talking about that issue. We're going to get back to that in just a moment and whether or not some of the changes we're seeing is actually real. I want to talk about something more recent, and that is the presidential debate. I know uh, you wrote in your column earlier this week, you don't even believe in presidential debates, uh, understandably. You said, and I'm quoting here, they are too much theater and too little substance, and that they don't change anybody's mind. But that is before we saw the most insane and surreal shouting match ever broadcast, I, I would dare to say, in modern history. So I have to ask you, after the fact, what did you take away from all of that? And do you think it changed anybody's mind? I mean, it, listen, debates have impact on people. Uh, but, but my take is that they should not have as much impact as they do. Um, you know, the, the, the leading... Uh, issues for me are policy positions and character. Policy positions are, th are things you stake out ahead of, of the race, uh, ahead of the presidency. You want to do things that are important to you. But in every presidency, things come up, things happen. And when those things happen, the character of the person is what matters most. Um, can you still hear me? I don't know what's happening with my. And you're just as clear as you can be. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, so, so the character, but but my contention was that the character had already been revealed before we got to a debate. That 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 its usefulness was was less this cycle in particular than in any other cycle. Uh, and you know, and and also we're now living in a modern age where everybody's policy positions are on their website. Uh, you may want the theater of having them defended in you know in real time. That's fine. What we saw, though, it was kind of was petulant, uh, mostly on the part of the president. And, you know, take from that what you want, but it's, it's an extension of what he's been doing for, for, you know, the last four years, but also for life. So, you know, am I 
aghast at it? Yes, but I'm aghast at him. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for answering that. Well, 2020 has been a year of enormous upheaval, and that is putting it mildly, especially in the black community. From the devastating effects of COVID-19 on black and brown citizens to the horrific deaths we've been talking about of George Floyd, who, by the way, was a Houstonian. I don't know if you were aware of that. And Breonna Taylor. Uh, It has been brutal emotionally for so many of us. And As people of color know all too well, this is just the latest chapter after decades of fighting for civil rights. So as someone who writes about this all of the time and certainly talks about how emotionally draining and exhausting this is for people of color, how do you kind of sustain yourself, your sense of what's right and wrong? How do you, how are you able to write about this and really lay out there what your thoughts are without just giving up? Uh, because I, I work in, in a newsroom and uh, our newspaper is large enough that we have foreign correspondents. And so I take a lot of my lessons from the things that they have uh, told us back in the newsroom. I mean, they used, they used to have uh, these little sessions where you could come and listen to somebody talk about their job for lunch, you know, bring your lunch. And, right. and I went to some with the foreign correspondents and, it, and it, you know, they more than anybody have to see horrible, horrendous things and still have to have enough composure to see that, write their story, make their deadline and and have it have some detach from the trauma. Mm-hmm. And I believe that, that a lot of us black journalists are act are operating as far as on domestic soil, keeping enough distance to be able to perform our jobs, because otherwise you'd go crazy. And and that's what that's what they that's what they had learned, and that's what I learned from them. Be in it, but keep a little space. Yeah, and you definitely have to do that. And it's interesting you call it trauma. I know uh, you wrote about the verdict coming back, and verdict is not the right word, but the grand jury decision coming back in the case of Breonna Taylor. And as I read through that, I could feel so much pain. Uh, and, and that sense of frustration that once again, here is someone's life who is devalued because of the color of her skin. She was doing nothing wrong except, you know, going to bed in her own home when she was shot. Um, why do you think that one felt so personal for you? Why was it so difficult for you, as you said, to even put words to paper? And part of it is the repetition. Like, I, I've written about too many of them. So what, what, else, what, else, what else do people want to hear from me on this? What do you want me to say? Again, that's that's one to write again, yeah, and a period, because you know, and and also you anticipate all the rationalizing. Well, she shouldn't have done this, and her, her boyfriend shouldn't have done this. It can't be that way. This, these people cannot be collateral damage. You, you, what is everybody's, what, how does this, what are people supposed to do? Like everybody goes home and goes to sleep in their own bed and they're like, oh my God, that was a sad thing that happened. That wish we, wish we hadn't, that was a, that was a big mistake. It was a tragedy, but you know, back to work tomorrow. Right. Got to cut the grass this weekend. Just keep living your life responsible for this woman being dead. And that's, that's what the grand jury and, and the, the, the AG basically were telling us. No, nobody, no, there's no fault here. She was alive before she interacted with the state. And when the state left, she was dead, uh, but nobody's at fault. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get back to, uh, the, the, as you called it, uh, Coachella, social justice Coachella here. But it is quite seriously the first time that many of us have seen large numbers of whites uh, joining in protests, carrying big Black Lives Matter signs, demanding change. But you say, as you talked about, that we've been here before, like the Freedom Summer of the 1960s. Can you share your thoughts as to whether or not you think white allies this time is a lasting concept, or is it a mirage, once again, that will die down after the heat of the moment passes? Now, the honest answer is that history is going to have to tell us that. We're in the middle of it now. We don't know how people are going to perform. I'm, I'm very interested in seeing the, uh, the election because it'll show us whether or not there's a silent group of people that we're not seeing that's equal to or bigger than the people that we did see. Mm -hmm. uh, and we will, we will be able to look uh, by race and, and region and all sorts of ways at how people voted, and they'll tell us a lot. Uh, right now, we just don't know. And, but we do see a sliding back of support for Black Lives Matter in those protests. That is a real thing. And so, uh, what is that? Is that backlash? Is that uh, fatigue? Uh, is that we've moved on to the next subject? Uh, I'm not sure what that is, but it is. A, it feels like a repeat. It feels like a repeat. Bef when when the dogs and, and, and the water hoses were on the kids in the South, people in places like New York were all for the civil rights movement. Once they started getting actual legislation through, as I said in that speech, the polls start saying that people back on them. Uh, I don't know where they end up. I know that I do still fading, falling away from the cause. But, but as I was pointing out, the cause hasn't produced the results. So you can't fall away without winning anything. Was all this for naught? Are we, are we going to let that legislation just fester in the Senate and go nowhere? We, we got nothing. I, I just read a story last week. After all those calls for defund the police, they looked at the 50 biggest police departments in America and half, more than half of them are now increasing funding or holding funding steady. Yeah. You've called... President Trump, and I'm going to quote you here, a full-blown, unrepentant racist and white supremacist. And you go on to say he hates black competence, and there is no one he hates more than Barack Obama, his predecessor. But do you think that naked racism, uh, which unfortunately we have seen, inspires non-blacks to turn against him? Or does it just make white people uncomfortable but still willing to vote their pocketbook? Do you think that this time around it might make a difference? You know, uh, people are no more a monolith than black people, right? So there are some people who are repulsed by this behavior, don't want to be associated with the racist, but there are other people who this is exactly what they want to hear. Uh, and, 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 you know, the way they look at it, finally somebody's saying it out loud. And we don't have to be uh, cowed by that. We don't have to walk away from that. I, we can say it out loud. I can support him out loud. And so... For some people, this is absolutely a draw. What 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 the results show us is what percentage was it a for what percentage was it a draw, and for what percentage was it a repellent? 
Are you concerned about what might happen after the elections, whether he wins or loses? I, I, you know, I don't, um, I'm just taking it one day at a time. I, I don't know all this foolishness uh, about the, you know, the vote. There's so much happening all right now that I can't worry about what he's going to do after an election. Uh, the, the AP just posted a story where two uh, people involved with the Trump campaign uh, are facing charges because they were uh, had put out robocalls to largely black cities and populations to try to deter them from voting, which is illegal. That's they are facing several felonies, uh, saying that they would you, you might face for, for mail-in voting, saying if you did it, you might face arrest and all sorts of things. The, the amount of suppression that happened last time around black people and the black vote was extraordinary. We still don't talk about that enough. And what it looks like is that they're gonna do the exact same thing again, try to suppress black vote. So I'm worried about that right now. I'll worry about what happens after the results come in later. We're getting several questions from uh, folks out in the audience, and I want to thank them for that. Uh, so here's one that just came in. How do you view the prospects for reparations for black people? Uh, nationally, it's tough. It, you know, it's almost, you know, I don't, see a, I don't see a path yet on the national reparation. However, reparations has, has slowly over the years been drifting down to states and cities. There are now states and cities who are studying the idea of reparations. There's one town that decided to give reparations to its its uh, citizens. So I think we should. It may be reframed around uh, on the state level or on the local level if you cannot get a national bill through, which is what I again will say is going to be very very hard. All right, I'm looking here for another question, and someone asked, uh, can you address the interconnection of race and class? How does a racial justice movement also become a movement for economic justice? And you talked a little bit about that as uh, Martin Luther King was trying to do before his assassination. Right, well, uh, because I believe that race, most racism is about power, one arm of power is economic power. So. The class issue for me is uh, uh, unable to be unwound from the race issue. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that people use the power of economics uh, uh, to build the racist structures that oppress people, right? And so I just, I just think they're bound up together, but I do, but I do not like when people try to substitute the class issue for the race issue because you can move in and out of class. I can't take the skin off. Yeah. And you think ultimately it is more about race than class? I think race is the visceral uh, component and that, and that class is a, is a much more the, uh, the structural part of it. Here's another question that came in. The blatant injustice meted out to black Americans in today's times means a lot still needs to be done. Yet black America does not have a central unifying and inspirational leader like Dr. King back in the 1960s. 
does black America need a Martin Luther King today? And who among current black leaders, in your opinion, can step into that role and lead the struggle to fight the cause of black America? And here's the final part of it. Should Obama stop being a former president of all Americans and be more like the MLK of today? I don't think that modern activism operates with the with that top-down structure. It's just mm-hmm. it's just a different thing. And and I think they uh they kind of uh reject those kind of formal structures. They like the crust activism. And that's it, all of them. That's not race. That's that's Occupy Wall Street that doesn't have a leader. That's uh mm-hmm. uh Black Lives Matter that doesn't have one. They don't like that. Uh, even even the kids out of uh, uh, that started the the gun rights thing, there's there's no real leader. It's a group of people, right? And so and and in one way, it's a good thing. The all the when we had one leader, every time they got killed. You can't kill an amorphous group that has no leader. Everybody's the leader. That's an excellent point. All right. Um, Most national polls at this point show Biden leading in the race by a wide margin, but you have warned people not to write off uh, President Trump just yet. In fact, you've called, you've said his lying is a superpower. Why are you so convinced that perhaps it's not over already? I I, I think it it is a a fool's errand to predict an election. So whenever somebody says, oh, they have it locked, it's never locked. We never know. I mean, I, I, I have more faith in polling than I think a lot of people do, particularly after uh, 2016, a lot of people got turned off by polling because they thought the polling was selling them something that was opposite of what happened. It actually wasn't. It was it was just national polling. Uh, uh, and it was pretty accurate because she did win by three million votes. Uh, but I do believe the polls. What I, what I don't want to do is jump 30 days ahead because every day, we have new news yeah. with this president. I don't know what, how many big stories are gonna break between now and this election day that could change this whole race. I have no clue. I do believe that if we voted today and everybody were able to access the polls, that Biden would win, but we're not voting today. I have no idea what access to the polls is gonna be like. This is the first time that we're not operating on, a, on the consent decree about elections and uh, poll watchers. That's why he's telling everybody to go watch the polls. He wants people to intimidate. And if you get enough people up there, you'll overrun the authorities. You can't arrest everybody. So I don't know what that access is going to be like. I don't know what the vote, the polling, the, the, the counting of the mail-in ballots is going to be like and how long it's going to take and whether or not it will be tied up in courts. I just don't know. Yeah. Here's another question uh, from the audience. Uh, we're very familiar with the names of blacks who have been killed by law enforcement. There are many more blacks, though, that are killed by blacks in the black community, but we never hear about their names. Do those black lives not matter? And again, I want to emphasize this is a question from the audience. That's right. No, I mean, I think what people never see and what pe- the news got tired of reporting was, was community violence. But if you live in black community, you know you go to the vigils. You know, you go to the Stop the Violence rally. You go to the Stop the Violence uh, um, uh, block party. I, you, I've gone to the Stop the Violence poetry reading. 
we work on this all the time in community. Yeah. The idea that nobody's talking about it is a lie. It is a complete lie. Everybody who lives in black community knows we talk about it all the time. We know that the, the, the conditions that create that sort of desperation is born out of racism as well. It is the poverty, it is the hopelessness, it is the living in cramped conditions that no, you wouldn't want anybody to live in. And all of that produces its own form of, 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 of exhaling, which is violent. We now are under, come and understand that all these communities in America with this lead poisoning problem, that that, that can also, is first of all, the damage is permanent mm -hmm. and it can lead to violence later in your life. All this stuff, we know this. We know that what, what we freak out about is that we know this and this is a solvable thing that we know that if we can move out of this neighborhood, we are not part of that. We yeah. know that if I don't go around that corner where the trouble is, I'm less like, if I don't hang on this corner at night, I'm less likely to be part of it. When it's the state doing the, the killing, who do you call? It's almost like when the state does, it's like God is reaching down and, 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 and grabbing you because there is nowhere you can hide from the state. It is so much more ominous. The, the state is everywhere. I don't, if I avoid the corner and I don't get shot, that's good. If I'm literally sleeping in my bed and the state comes in and kills me, that's, that's terrifying. There's no way to, there's nothing in my behavior that can prevent that from happening. Which brings me to this next question. How do you respond to people who continuously deny systemic racism, no matter how much evidence is presented to them? I don't respond to it. I, I mean, I, I've just gotten to the point where I'm exhausted by trying to explain racism. You, here's the thing. People always ask, you know, like, oh, let's debate this or give me five books to read that make me understand racism. Listen, let me tell you something. The, all the answers to racism are not written on my birth certificate when I was born into the world. <laughs> the same work that I had to do, you need to do it. They don't give us different textbooks. They don't send us to some clinic where we learn how to what racism is and how to deal with it. The, the, the same way we have to discover things, to learn things, to unlearn things, you need to do it. There was nothing special. We didn't invent racism. That is for sure. All right, I, uh, I'm a high school teacher in New Jersey. I'm a white passing Latinx male. So how do you recommend, and this goes back to your question, I present my students with relevant information to combat uh, systemic racism and equip them with the tools needed to do so? I don't know, I, that's, that's too big a question for me, I think. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I, don't know how, I don't know how to even answer that. I mean, uh, I think part of it is just uh, so much of what is happening is hidden from people on purpose. Mm -hmm. So much uh, history that, of things that have happened needs to be reclaimed. Um, and, and just living, instructing kids in an honest way is, is, is a huge step in the right direction. I, just, I don't think our kids get anywhere near honest assessments on this issue. 
All right, here's another question from the audience. What does a costly response look like for whites who desire to truly enact solidarity and in the context of a, a potential political change that some think will only result in cosmetic responses to systemic injustice and racism? Kind of a mouthful there, well, but. Just a lot, but I, but I think part of it is you, we're gonna have to at some point start walking the walk, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is, it is, it costs, it is economic. The reason that people don't want uh, the Affordable Care Act is that uh, health people, uh, a lot of them white, don't wanna pay for other people to not get sick. You know, this is, this is the meritocracy argument taken to its, to its ultimate extent. They believe everything I got, I worked for, for no, nothing was given to me, which is a complete lie. Mm -hmm. Nationally, speaking on the racial term, Literally, when slaves are being freed and refused, and the state refused to give them land, they were giving away tens of millions of acres of land to white peasants from Europe in the West and the Midwest. So don't tell me that you did it all on your own. And not only did they do that, they set up the state schools to help you learn how to be better farmers. They gave you low interest rate loans so that you could mechanize your farms. They sent through the uh, subsidies so you wouldn't even have to farm and you would still get paid, mm -hmm. right? So, and when they were denying black people that the whole time. So it is economic. So when you say, I don't wanna pay for this person because they should, they should be able to get their own health. No, that, that means you don't believe in one society and inequality and, and, and that, that those negative effects that we're seeing exposed by COVID are partly caused by a lack of healthcare for many of these young, these, these black and brown people, everything. When you, talk, when you think about where you live and where you wanna buy a house, if, you're, if you are not doing that in a colorblind way, you're part of the problem. When, when people, when the, the researchers who've looked at how, uh, uh, real estate patterns by race, and they, they do the studies and ask them, what do you wanna live? And they, uh, all the white liberals say, oh, I wanna live in a diverse neighborhood. And then when they actually go out and buy a house, they buy a house in a place where they are the overwhelming majority. Yeah. Right? And that, and by clustering that economic power, which is already clustered around race, it means that your schools do great and these other schools where they have less money perform horribly because you made a choice, not a colorblind choice, but a, a color conscious choice. All of these choices that we make, you know, we, we want the, 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 you know, taxes to be low, but they're going to get that money somewhere and they're bleeding it out of black bodies. Yeah. Right. They, 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 they politicians are cowards, but you know that you could pay a bit more. But the, if you don't get it, the city just says, you know, let's increase some fines and let's put some more people in this neighborhood and stop some more people and write some more tickets. And also let's put some more fines. So when you go to jail, you can, you know, the things stack up and you like OS interest and whatever, and they make money. So you go to your city budget, any city in America, and look at how much money they expect to get from those fines next year. They're already counting on that money. That money's already spent, right? And the reason that they, it, it, so there is no, it is not a coincidence that almost all of these killings happen because of some minor infraction, very often a travel, a traffic violation. 
because they're trying to get that money that they refuse to ask from you in taxes. It just, these problems cost something. It is being paid right now in lies and blood, but it's gonna cost something to fix it. It is not, it is not without it. And what I wanna know is what's gonna happen when, when real progress starts to affect your privilege? It starts moving into your neighborhood. When young Martha Mundell, when King went up to Chicago and talked about fair housing, he was talking about the violent reaction to it. He was like, fair housing is not just about itself. Fair housing brings civil rights to my neighborhood. And people get very nervous about that because they think, oh, I can go to brunch. And then after that, we're gonna go to the march and then we're gonna get off and we can get some cocktails and we go back to my house on the other side of town. Okay. <laughs> But that's not that's not putting your that's not putting your privilege your privileges in jeopardy. You dip in a toe in. What happens? Because the only reason you have privileges is because somebody else is oppressed. When the oppression eases, the privileges will decrease. What? what how will you feel then? We don't know the answer to that yet. That's pretty interesting. When progress gets in the way of privilege. Uh, here's a question. I'm a white woman who is not a government official. Besides voting, what can I do personally to improve this situation? I mean, I think it's part of the last question. You, you have to make all of your choices in life uh, uh, race neutral uh, and, you, and, and see how that plays out. Be because the reason yeah, it's the, it's the same question. You know, if, if, they, if they become race neutral, you'll lose some things. It, it, it's, privilege means you've gotten things that you didn't deserve. Basically, that's what privilege is. You're going to lose some things. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the fact that somebody else was deprived of those things that you that you got? How do you feel about that? Because that's what is that's that's what you're gonna have to do. You're gonna stare yourself in the face and say, "Am I comfortable with losing some things?" Mm -hmm. Because that's what equality looks like. I have some things that I don't deserve, and that takes me into the next question. And actually, uh, there are two versions of it. Talk about local steps we should take and demand to address wealth redistribution, which again, as you say, is at the heart of inequality and injustice. And again, you spoke of income redistribution as the key to achieving social equality. How do we reassure skeptics that this is a call for justice and not a socialist project? Well, okay, so put it the other, turn that glove inside out. Mm -hmm. Our money was being redistributed forever, right? We were paying taxes. And the government would then take that money and use it all in the white neighborhood, fix their streets, have have multiple uh, uh, fire uh, hydrants in their in their neighborhood. I watched my neighbor's house burn to the ground because there was one fire hydrant in my entire neighborhood. And by the time they got enough line to run from that hydrant, which was a block and a half away to his house, it was in ashes. That's what, our wealth was always being redistributed to them, right? Our right. food school wasn't funded their way. They took our money and used it on them. Right. Is that fair? 
So you, we're not upset about that redistribution of our wealth, whatever we had of it. We're just mad if we if it goes the other way. So how do you address that ultimately? I have to go in and uh, specifically and look at those uh, uh, injustices and start to fix them, right? If 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 we have uh, the last uh, Secretary of Labor, Governor Obama, addresses, we literally plant the federal government did this, use federal funds to plan highways and and, and traffic so that white people could avoid black neighborhoods. We, they built highways in in ways that. To, would separate black neighborhoods and be make it impossible for you to cross. Like I can't, you can't cross six lanes on foot. So this would be this is like a, a natural barrier to keep you out. We did that. Yeah. We did that. We can, we have to use money to undo that. When Martin Luther King spoke in Memphis on April 13, 1968, he said in I've Been to the Mountaintop speech, it is no longer a choice between violence and nonviolence in the world. It is nonviolence or non-existence, and that is where we are today. So the question here is, what is the most important act that white people can take to move that cause forward? I would just say, uh, take another line from that speech. And I would say, be true to what you said on paper. That's what Martin said in this. Stop lying. Stop saying on paper that we're egalitarian and everything's equal and everybody has a fair shot. You know that's not true. You got to be true to what you said on paper. Uh, we, we have to be, we, we have to understand all the privileges around all the most important things we do in our lives, education higher education there is no way for a poor kid to be truly competitive when somebody else can buy five thousand dollar tutors and three thousand dollars on the test i know they try to like you know take some of that into account but you can't really uh you know if if all the ivies are, are taking the legacies first how how is how is that not affirmative action if you're participating in that, you're participating in affirmative action. Just be true to what to what is written down. Don't tell us that this is a meritocracy and all the best kids get in when we know that half the seats have already gone to the legacy before they even start counting the, 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 the ones on merit. And then many of the ones on merit are the people who are the richest ones who got who can afford all of what it takes to score high on those tests. Just be honest. Yeah. Or like you say, tell the truth and shame the devil. Huh? Tell the truth and shame the devil. That's exactly right. I want to step aside briefly and talk a little bit about uh, the election one more time. Um, obviously, Joe Biden made history by choosing Kamala Harris as his running mate. But you've said that doesn't necessarily guarantee that black folks will go to the polls and support him. Why do you think that is? There's just a lot of uh, uh, people... Uh, trying to manipulate the black vote, hmm. a lot of them. Uh, I don't know, what, I, you know, we don't know, I was talking to another political operator that he said, Facebook is the black hole. We don't know what's happening on Facebook because you can't see it. It's so big that there's no way to individually see what individual people are seeing. So we don't have no idea how people are being affected. 
What we do know is that black men have been slowly falling away from a Democratic candidate, not huge numbers. You know, they start in uh, 2008. Uh, the gap between black men and black women is uh, one percentage points. I think they're both in the 90s. I don't know whether it was 94% voted for Obama. The next time, the gap was nine percentage points. Even in 2012, 2012, 2012, yeah, for the second Obama term. Yes, in 2016, it went down to the gap, I think, was 12 percentage points. They see that curve and they're trying to push it even further. That's part of the Kanye thing. Mm -hmm. That is the the criminal justice reform. But you keep typing that because they're they're they've kind of given up on black women because they're not moving. But the black men line is moving. So I don't know what the what will happen there. I don't know if, you know, will they be able to convince people to stay home? They're trying really hard. Uh, will they be able to get enough black men to increase that number by a percentage point or two? They're trying very hard. You know, uh, I mean, the good thing is, even with that being among black men, there's black people are still overwhelmingly voting for the Democratic candidate. It's just that there's some wiggle room in there. And the question is whether or not they will come out in the numbers that they did, for instance, for Obama. All right, another question from the audience. How do we hold our white friends and allies, the white moderates and liberals, accountable to the commitments they made during this summer? How do we stop them from capitalizing on black death, monetizing black and brown labor, tokenizing minorities, and actually do the work within themselves and in the society? How do we make these do-good organizations, including perhaps the one whose platform you're speaking to now, to stop talking and actually put their money where their mouth is? How do we engage the soul of the white folks when it feels as though they're not there? Ooh, that's a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know to, to, to be very honest, I don't put, I don't, that's not where I put my energy, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you know, I feel like people, you're going to do what you're going to do. Uh, one, one of the most important things that I think, uh, uh, ah, I'm losing your name, uh, Rope Beloved. Um, Rope Beloved. Uh, Alice Walker? Alice, uh, Tony, Tony Morrison. I don't Tony know Morrison, yeah. Tony Morrison. Okay, yeah. my bad too. Tony, Tony Morrison. What I think she, she said was that what the real effect of racism, even if it's not the intent, is distraction. It keeps you explaining stuff that don't need to be explained. It keeps you going, getting evidence for this and trying to change somebody's mind. And that. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm over that. Now, there are people who do that work and I'm happy that they do it. But time, energy, effort are limited commodities in their life. I don't infinite for days to live. I'm 50 years old. Half my life is already gone. I don't have that kind of time. Every moment I spend worrying about you, trying to drag somebody else out of it, is a moment I didn't spend writing and doing my work and loving my kids and being in my community. I put my time and energy into building up myself, my my family, showing you that it is possible that you can do that 
that that this because I look back at all the people who fought all these centuries, and I'm like, what else could Frederick Douglass have done if he weren't having to deal with racism? Right. He's, he spent his whole life trying to undo this foolishness. Yeah. Or Martin Luther King, brilliant man, spent his whole life having to deal with this. Invented. What could we? What? What amazing books could we have written if we weren't dealing with this? Yeah, excellent point. Um, I'm going to give you the last 10 to 15 seconds to just talk a little bit about what all of us should take away from this past summer and where we go now. I think, I'll sort of this way, personal growth is great. And I think there will be people who have grown from this. There will be people who will be lifelong advocates because of this summer. But never underestimate the, the propensity for America to backlash mm -hmm. against black progress. I have not seen it not happen. Yeah. I, I, everything I have ever read about black progress has a current backlash. Mm -hmm. And when that backlash comes, will you be there helping us? Charles Blow, this has been an amazing evening. We appreciate so much your time, uh, your thoughtfulness, your provocative ideas, um, and really your honesty about everything. We want to thank you for your participation in the 2020 Sissy Farenthal Lecture. And I want to thank as well all of the people who attended tonight at your own homes, hopefully in your yoga pants or your jogging suit, enjoying this evening. I hope it's not just another in a long list of intellectual discussions, but that all of us are, as Charles said, opening our eyes, opening our minds, our thoughts, and our hearts. Uh, and that is especially true of so many of our white allies who must do more, I think, to uh, step out and, and to really push for change. I hope this gave you some insight into how to do that for your friends of color who, as Charles says, lives with racism every single day. Now, I want to tell you that the 2021 lecture, which will be in the fall at UT Austin, we will be sending out information about that, and we invite you to keep an eye out for future announcements on that program. And by the way, we're coming to you from the heart of the Rothko Chapel, which has reopened. If you have not yet visited it yet, we would like to invite you to come see the space in a whole new light. Throughout the year, there is ongoing uh, programming at the chapel and the Rappaport Center, and there are websites for each institution listed in the closing credits. I don't know if Charles is gone or not, but we sure are glad that we had a chance to spend some time with him. Thank you so much, Charles Blow, and next time we're going to get you to Houston. It's a great place to be as long as it's not August. I'll just tell you that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks to everybody else, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you.